Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Albu Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Brigadier General Carsten Rasmussen, uh, retired from the Royal Danish Army. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. General, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I, I suspect there are many different topics we will want to cover uh, during the course of this episode. But perhaps one way of, of getting into this conversation is to is to pick up on your experience as a former defense attaché with the uh, Danish embassy in Moscow. So we've been watching uh, the Russian military in action for over a year now in Ukraine. In many ways, uh, the Russian military underperformed um, the expectations that, that that observers had, and, and and the sort of assessments that had been made by experts before the war. Were you surprised by anything in particular during the course of this this war when it comes when it comes to to the Russian military performance and and its inability to adapt, its inability to to really sort of perform as you know as as one would expect the second largest military in the world to to perform i'm a senior fellow at the institute of military analysis it's a rather new it's a, it's a very new institute in denmark we have retired danish officers but we're also a norwegian officer finnish officer on board now and we try to make ourselves relevant in the Danish and Nordic debate about defense and the future of uh, or the development of our defense in the future I was indeed surprised by that. I would say first, I was not surprised at all that that Russia invaded Ukraine. There, there was a reaction in uh, in in Europe and in the West in general that that this came as a surprise. It did not come as a surprise. It had been brewing for a long time. We could see the build up. It was pretty clear that something was going to happen, although we didn't know the exact date. And uh, when it comes to the performance of the uh, Russian army. Uh, I was I was indeed surprised. Uh, I'd expected them to perform better than they did. Uh, I had expected them to go through a, a deeper and a more thorough planning at both the operational and the tactical level for the the operation that they under, undertook. And I couldn't imagine that the Russian army would enter into such a big operation in a peacetime establishment. Uh, we saw Rus- Russian unit passing the border to Ukraine uh, on a peacetime establishment with only 60-70% manning, uh, which is completely inadequate uh, for a, a major offensive operation as they launched. So do you think that this is mainly that the errors were mainly due to planning? Um, and we've heard the rumors about um, the Russian army having their um, their ceremony uniforms um, around the idea of three days to t- to take all of Ukraine. Um, so bad bad information and bad planning. Or was it also to some extent, maybe less so for you um, with um, uh, ample military experience, but for most of us um, across the West um, that are looking kind of from a civilian perspective, was it also that we had built 
Russia into something more capable than it was due to disinformation, propaganda over many years, trying to tell us in so many instances, you know, from their use of drones just before the war to their um, military reform and their efficiency in military operations over the last few years, that they actually weren't um, all that powerful and effective as we were telling ourselves that they are. Yeah, they fooled us, but I think more importantly, they fooled themselves. They, they started this war uh, overconfident uh, that, that, that they could win the war within just a very, very short time frame. They thought that, the Ukraine, that they would meet a, a weak enemy, the Ukrainian army, and they were simply overconfident that they, as I said, with a peacetime establishment, uh, with a poor planning that did not go all the way from top to bottom before this operation, that they could simply roll over Ukraine just in a matter of a few days or a matter of a few weeks. So they managed to fool us into believing that they were uh, stronger than they actually uh, proved to be, but they also fooled themselves. And if I can um, ask just a follow-up question based on your experience as defense attaché to the embassy um, of Denmark in Moscow, this was at the time of the full-scale invasion, right? You were there, um, you watched the full-scale invasion from Moscow. So can you tell us what your personal experience um, was, how you felt, how did Moscow feel in those days um, from that kind of unique position? I got up early in the morning on the 24th of uh of February uh, 22 for for reasons that men in my age have to get sometimes to get up a bit early in the morning. I checked my telephone and and uh, found out that uh, President Putin was going to deliver a speech on television uh, early in the morning before six o'clock or around six o'clock in the morning. Um, I was watched this speech with the disbelief horrors. He's actually going to do it. Not that it came as a surprise, but anyway, when so now it's the real thing. I couldn't really believe that. And then Moscow changed a lot during the first uh, couple of weeks after the invasion took place, uh, where Moscow was a very pleasant, or in many ways, a very pleasant city to live in, uh, in, uh, in 2019, 2020, and, and up to the invasion. Things changed a lot the first few days. It felt more, you felt the control, you felt the police was there. You felt uh, the uh, Rosguardia uh, was everywhere. Patrols on the street uh, started to check uh, people's ID, check uh, particular young people's uh, mobile phones, cell phones, uh, check what they had in the bags. And uh, Western companies uh, started to close down their shops in Moscow. So just within the first couple of weeks, the, the, the whole atmosphere of the city changed uh, quite a lot. Can you tell our listeners how long you were in Russia after the invasion? I was in Russia till the beginning of April, where I was uh, I was ordered back to to Copenhagen due to my possibility to continue my work in in Moscow. I was simply exhausted at that time. I was under under very close surveillance by uh, by Russian uh, security people uh, all the time. And as a matter of fact, the last few days I had to stay in, in my apartment. I couldn't I couldn't leave the apartment. So at that time, uh, I, it didn't make any sense for me uh, to continue uh, try, to try to, to work from Russia. I should at this point tell our listeners that we've been joined by our colleague Giselle Donnelly over from the 
from the UK. Uh, Giselle, it's great to have you on the podcast with us. Oh, it's just glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you, and I apologize for uh, uh, tagging us. And I think you are going to enjoy this one because there'll be a lot of talk of tanks in particular. But before we get to tanks, I wanted let's, to let's get to it. I, I, General, I wanted to ask you about you know one topic that is on everybody's mind right now, which is the battle of of Bakhmut, which seems to be the largest, bloodiest battle of this of this war, um, in which you know both sides seem to be suffering extraordinary casualty levels. Uh, and there's this sort of debate about whether uh, President Zelensky should withdraw, shouldn't withdraw. Is the mistake how how much Bakhmut itself matters? Do you have any views on on on, on the sort of the, the 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 state of the of the of the play on the on 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 the ground as it presents itself today on the 10th of March? I'd say the the battle of Bakhmut does not matter itself. It it's not. The geography of, of Bakhmut does not make it a, a strategic important city by, by any means. It's, it, it's not a, a railroad uh, juncture. It's not important. There are no important infrastructure in, in Bakhmut. But the battle of Bakhmut matters because the casualty ratio uh, right now still appears to be very much in Ukrainian favor, uh, where the uh, the Russian loses between five and seven uh, soldiers every time the Ukrainian loses one. So it, it's it's a very cynical game that's taking place in Bakhmut. But it's to the Ukrainian advantage to continue to attrit Russian forces in Bakhmut while they are probably preparing for an offensive later this spring. Uh, so therefore, it still makes a lot of sense to, to, to stay in Bakhmut as long as the Ukrainians are able to do that. But as as the map look right now, uh, we are getting closer and closer to the time where I believe the Ukrainians will decide to withdraw from Bakhmut itself. If I could uh, just ask a follow-up question about that. As a tactical analysis and certainly as an operational analysis and maybe even a strategic analysis, I would surely agree with, with what you said. But it is so curious that the Russians keep banging away at this. They must value it in a way, maybe domestically, politically, and maybe uh, you know, Mr. Pogosian will make some hay out of this uh, as an internal, in an internal political power struggle. Just trying to look at this through Russian eyes is, is first of all, just very difficult to do. But given the investment that they continue to and the manpower that they continue to throw away in the most sort of capricious manner, uh, it makes me wonder just what the heck they're thinking and whether we can deduce something from the price they seem to be willing to pay for a somewhat pointless victory. I, I believe that the, the Russian plan was then uh, at the beginning of the winter to attrit Ukrainian forces and also to attrit the Ukrainian society. And that's the reason why we've seen these uh, bombing missile UAV campaigns against civilian infrastructure, against energy infrastructure uh, throughout the entire depth of uh, Ukraine. And then at the same time, they, they, the, the Russians tried to wear down the Ukrainian forces on the front line. And for whatever reason, uh, beyond my comprehension, Bakhmut suddenly started to get 
a, a huge symbolic value uh, for the Russian. Suddenly, for the Russian side, suddenly Bakhmut was so important to to win the battle in the Donbass, to uh, to to seize uh, Donetsk, to seize uh, Luhansk, and as the battle, the the important, the symbolic importance of the battle increased for the Russian side, it also started to increase for the Ukrainian side, because now it it also became a symbol of Ukrainian resilience. At the same time, moving away slightly from Bahmut, but still looking at, at the battlefield, the conversation continues on whether um, the West is giving the Ukrainians enough to win or just enough to barely make it, to survive. And we've seen that through particularly the lens of the leopards, freeing the leopards over the last few months. Um, and as we are speaking, training of the leopards has um, has started. I think um, when we're looking at Poland, they just declared um, that um, their training has already been finalized as being on some, some of the first um, to open up um, training for the Ukrainians. And um, you, General, have been um, driving um, leopards, uh, including leopards, once, particularly in Bosnia um, in the 1990s, in the first half of the 1990s. So can you tell us how is it to drive a leopard, first of all? Um, second of all, how what do you see in terms of the challenges um, in training um, for leopards? How difficult is it or easy? And do you think that with the reduced number that we have overall as the West um, promised of tanks compared to what the Ukrainians um, have been asking for a minimum of 300 when we have just the first ones arriving now, what difference do you expect Western tanks, older Western tanks to be making in the next few months in Ukraine? Actually, can I just add one thing to that list? I think it would be useful to explain to people what the difference in the generation of the tanks is in between the Leopard 1 and the Leopard 2, which is would be analogous to uh, you know other West, uh, differences between other generations of Western tanks. Why is the Leopard 2 superior to Leopard 1? Before I start to talk about tanks, I think I'll talk a little bit about of the support that we have provided uh, from Western side, also from from the Danish side in general to Ukraine, and then I can I can talk about uh, tanks for an eternity after that if you, <laughs> if you allow You're me. You're very to. welcome to. <laughs> it, it, it's all, you know uh, it's all electronic. We can go on forever. Super, super. In in general, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll use Denmark as an example to illustrate how this has evolved out over time. Uh, the support uh, for Ukraine. Denmark has, during this past year, uh, provided support for approximately 1 billion US dollars uh, in uh, in total, 700 million in uh, in military support and the rest humanitarian direct financial support. That makes Denmark rank as number nine, uh, nine sorry, number 10 among the countries that delivers uh, military assistance uh, uh, to Ukraine. And the total value of this is now uh, in direct bilateral support, it's, it's 0.22% of our GDP. And if we include the, the support that we pro- 
uh, provide through the European Union, it's at it adds up to 0.47 percent of the GDP. So it is, although uh, Denmark is a very small country, is still a substantial support. The way it has evolved over time was that. Just before the invasion started, our chief of defense was asked by the minister uh, to figure out what we could support with of non-lethal support. And that was on, the, I believe it was on the 7th or 8th of February last year. Uh, but after the, the invasion started, that quickly changed. We started to consider first to, to uh, deliver uh, lethal support to the Ukrainians. We took things that that we had readily available in our warehouses, like light anti-tank weapons in the beginning, uh, then Stinger air defense missiles, uh, spare parts for Stinger missiles. And then there was a discussion, or the, actually there was no discussion, then suddenly we had uh, we delivered Harpoon anti-ship missiles that were used by the Ukrainians in the, uh, in, in the Black Sea. And then we had this discussion that had been there in so many uh, countries over time, where are the red lines uh, for uh, the support that we can uh, provide to Ukraine? Uh, and we gradually realized that there were no such red lines. So starting from light anti-tank weapons and, and air defense missiles, uh, we moved forward to provide older APCs, uh, M113 APCs, we entered into a joint venture with other nations uh, to produce some Susana, two self-propelled artillery pieces. They were produced by uh, Slovakia. Then we donated an artillery battalion of brand new uh, CESA artillery pieces that we had just uh, purchased from France. They didn't even make it to Denmark. They were redirected to, uh, to Ukraine immediately. Then the whole discussion about tanks started and now the discussion is, is somewhere else. We're now discussing, should we donate F-16s? Uh, should we donate aircraft? Uh, should uh, Ukraine have uh, uh, longer range precision weapons? So this has been a very incremental process where we have, how should I put it? We've gone from one meeting in Ramstein to the next meeting in Ramstein. And, and we've done that for a year now. We now come to the point where most of the warehouses uh, in Europe, uh, they are half empty. There's not, not much ammunition left. Uh, we've come to the point where it's really painful to give away uh, more weapon systems from your, your own inventory, because we still, we, we also have to rebuild our own defense capacity. So I think we are at a, we are at a juncture now where we need to make some very tough decisions and start to produce what is needed not only for Ukraine, but also to rebuild our, our own militaries and to fill our warehouses with the ammunitions, uh, with the ammunition, the light weapons and all the things that we pulled out of the warehouses over, over the last year. And let me now turn to, uh, to tanks. When I was a young officer served in, in uh, tank units, uh, Denmark had more than 300 tanks. We had 230 uh, Leopard 1 tanks at that time. After the end of the Cold War, uh, we really cast in on a peace dividend and uh, downsized the armed forces, including our tank fleet, uh, which means that we're now down to, I believe it's only 44 Leopard 2s. So when the decision was made to donate tanks to Ukraine, to us, it did not make any sense to start to donate Leopard 2s because we have so few. We had one squadron of 14 tanks deployed to Estonia right now. 
another one is in the workup period and a few tanks are coming out of of, uh, of germany after being upgraded to uh, to 2a7 so if we decided to donate leopard 2 we could probably have donated a platoon of four tanks to the ukrainians which would not make any sense whatsoever four four tanks does not make any difference therefore we started to look for uh, other solutions and we did that uh, first with our german partners then with uh, our dutch partners as well uh, because we knew that there were old tanks available in uh, warehouses not owned by governments anymore but owned by private companies in germany we had 99 x danish leopard 1a5s in uh, flensburg uh, owned by a company called FFT, the Flensburger Fahrzeuggebaugesellschaft in, in, in German. And there were, I believe it was 88 ex-German uh, tanks owned by Rheinmetall in another warehouse in, in Germany. Uh, so we decided to, uh, to donate these tanks instead of see what we could make of the more than 150 tanks that were in, in warehouses. And we made this joint venture uh, and it's ongoing now. The governments have bought back these or will buy back these tanks. Uh, the companies are ready, are making them ready for deployment uh, to Ukraine. Uh, we end up uh, preparation phase of training Ukrainian uh, tank crews or Ukrainian uh, tank instructors. And at the end of this process, we think we will be able or we will be able to donate at least 100, perhaps as many as 150 Leopard 1A5 tanks. And then people, I've heard some criticism say, oh, Leopard 1 is a very old tank. How come, how can you donate this tank uh, to the Ukrainian? Is it fit for mod for modern battle? And I would say, yes, it is indeed. The Leopard uh, 1 tank is absolutely suitable for what's going on in Ukraine right now. The majority of the Russian tanks are older tanks. And uh, as the war uh, uh, at, over time, we see more and more older tanks uh, coming into the, the Russian uh, formations. We now have seen, I believe it's up to 800 uh, T-62 tanks. They're 60 year old. They're being, uh, they're being prepared for combat and being issued to a Russian unit. Even the most advanced, the most elite tank units like the First Guard Tank Army, their new tank units are going into Ukraine with T-62. And then back to the Leopard 1A5, the Leopard 1A5 is is very superior uh, to a six, T-62. It's even superior to some of the, of the more modern uh, uh, Russian tanks. So of course it's not a Leopard 2, of course it's not an Abrams, of course it's not a Challenger tanks but it can make a, different, uh, on the, a difference on the battlefield. And the philosophy behind this, it's better to have old tanks than, than no tanks. And it's much better to have many tanks than few tanks. If I can ask just a quick follow-up, uh, apart from the tanks, you mentioned at some point um, that you think we are at a juncture, that one year plus into the war, it's a matter of production and amping up production on the continent in Europe, as well as in the United States. We hear bits and pieces out of Russia, part rumors, part um, data based about their challenges, but also their capacity of amping up production. So how do you think this can go into the next six months to, to nine months to even a year? Do you think 
that we will be able across kind of uh, in the United West to um, amp up production to the level that we can sustain um, the Ukrainian forces? Um, or will we be in a situation with political um, changes in the United States, across Europe, with time, with people for, um, losing focus on Ukraine, basically disable the Ukrainians from winning um, while the Russians um, go into this for the long haul and believe that time is on their side? I believe the next, the next few months will be very critical in this respect because even though the decisions have been made in, in the United States and, and also uh, in, in Europe to increase, for example, the production of artillery uh, ammunition, artillery ammunition is in very short supply on the Ukrainian side as well as, as on the Russian side right now. This week there was a meeting of the European Union defense ministers in, in Stockholm where the ministers uh, decided to enter in some sort of a joint venture uh, and pool the acquisition of artillery ammunition, both to Ukraine, but also to fill up our own warehouses again. But this takes it, it, it's going to take time because they have to set up new production lines and they have to increase the speed of already existing uh, production line. So I think the effect of the decisions being made right now in Europe and in the United States to increase production of ammunition, to increase the production of, of defense equipment in general, will not really kick in until late this year or perhaps the beginning of, uh, of next year. The consequence of this is that in, in, in order to continue to resource the Ukrainian military, we will have to take significant risk uh, by continuing to, to take uh, equipment to take supplies, ammunition uh, from our own warehouses, from our own uh, armed forces, and make sure that the Ukrainians have whatever they need uh, to defeat the Russians. If I may, um, this is such a, such an important point because, um, in, especially in the American discussion these days, there are just so many actors, many of them acting in bad faith saying that the Europeans are not doing enough and, and that this should not be America's problem and, and, and why are we you know, sending so much more assistance to Ukraine than, than the Europeans. So, so in your view, is there a sufficient sense of urgency in Europe? Is there anything that could be done beyond what is already being done, such as the common procurement scheme, such as you know, I've, 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 we've heard reports of, of supposed plans by Rheinmetall to set up a factory perhaps in Ukraine, producing Panthers for the Ukrainian military. Is there, is there, you know, what, what are the sort of binding constraints that, that could perhaps be sort of relaxed and, 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 and where, where should sort of the sense of urgency come from? There is indeed a sense of urgency in Europe. And, and uh, the, the way you, you explained is I think there's, there's also some, there's some misperception, some misunderstanding on, on the American side about how much or how little Europe actually does. It's absolutely correct that as a single nation, the United States is, is the, 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 the single biggest contributor, the single biggest donor nation. But look at what individual smaller European nations like Poland, like the Baltic states, how much they are providing if you compare that with the GDP. Even a country that like Denmark, and we're not in the top five, we're sort of around 10th place as a donor nation. If you see how much we provide, 
as part of our GDP, I, I think we outrank the United States in this. So there's indeed a sense of urgency in uh, in Europe. But we have the same challenges with our defense industry in Europe, as I believe the United States have. Uh, we have not been producing defense uh, equipment, uh, weapons, ammunition for a large-scale war for many, many uh, decades. And our production uh, facilities, our our factories are not up to speed yet. There's only one way we can get them up to speed, and that's by governments providing guarantees uh, uh, for uh, the industry. And also uh, that new investment needs to go into the defense industry to ramp up production of uh, defense equipment uh, as quickly as we possibly can. Let me use tanks as an example. Again, I, I love to talk about tanks, as, as you probably found out by now. Hitting all my hot spots. Yeah. And see, like a company like the German uh, Kraus Marfei Wegmann, the producer of Leopard 2 tanks. Uh, currently, what Kraus Marfei Wegmann is doing is upgrading uh, older version of the Leopard 2 up to the 2A7, the newest version. Uh, that's what being issued to the Danish forces right now and to the German forces as well. They're not building new tanks. Even though they, we know there will be a requirement for new tanks very soon, Norwegian government decided to uh, to procure, I believe it's 57 new 2A7 tanks. Uh, there's also been a decision, as far as I know, in Italy to buy a substantial number of Leopard 2A7, but they haven't signed the contract yet. And as long as they haven't signed those contracts, nothing is produced. That's where I think government needs to weigh in with guarantees and and needs to kickstart the production. Because in in reality, the companies would not take any risk by starting the the production right now. There'll be plenty of customers out there before uh, before the tanks roll off the production line. You know, uh, our listeners should understand that the situation in the United States is exactly analogous to this. I was at the uh, M1 tank factory in Ohio not too long ago, and General Dynamics, which operates that plant, and it's a government-owned plant, has only lately been able to bring its workforce up to the required level simply to meet the orders that are already on the books and to expand that line would would just take a long time and a lot of money and as you say uh basically require a government guarantee that it's a would be a, a worthwhile investment for the for the company to do that but Carson, if we could just also um sort of turn the telescope around a bit um, one thing that uh, concerns me equally is what's happening on the battlefield now is what people believe the situation will be after the war, if we can just use that shorthand term, and if we can also assume that uh, the Ukrainians are ultimately successful by their own definition. There will still be uh, a Russian threat posed to Eastern Europe. And I just would be interested in your perspective on whether there's been a Danish Zeitenwende uh, that really makes people grasp the idea that, you know, geopolitical military competition has returned to the Garden of Eden in Europe. Um, and just interested in your perspective on uh, 
how both your countrymen and, and if you have a perspective on Europe more broadly, whether uh, they've taken that point to heart or what they think about it. And if I can add to that to sort of take advantage of your presence here and nerd a bit about European defense, um, Denmark has been over the last year sort of flying under the radar because it's been flanked by Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO. But Denmark has joined over the last year European defense in the form of permanent structured cooperation. So can you help us also make sense of that? Is that how do you understand um, this important change in the context of the last year and the war? We do not call it a Seitenwende in Denmark, <laughs> but a similar process as the German Seitenwende. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Well, it is true, though. It is true, though, that the Danes had a much keener understanding of the Russian threat years before this full-fledged invasion. I remember conversations with my Danish friends back in 2014-15 that were qualitatively very, very different from what was coming out of Berlin at the time. That is perhaps correct. But unfortunately, the Danes failed to act on this understanding. And, the, the, and I'll go back a little bit. I, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, Denmark had, had really cashed in on the peace dividend at the end of the Cold War and, and downsized our armed forces, disbanded our conscription, our old conscription system, mobilization system. Um, and, and then in the years after the Cold War, the Danish forces were deployed in all sorts of alliance and coalition operations in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, uh, in the in Indian Ocean, and so on. And it, in, in parallel with maintaining this very high profile in alliance and coalition operation, uh, we disbanded many of our own uh, defense capabilities. Uh, based on an, on an assumption, uh, maybe a wrong assumption, that we would have at least a 10-year warning time before a direct military threat could uh, re-emerge in our immediate neighborhood. We had a glimpse of that threat back in 2008 when uh, Russia attacked Georgia. I was a defense attaché in, in, in Poland at that time. And uh, we did not, in, in, in Copenhagen, there was indeed not the same sense of urgency as in Warsaw. Uh, after the invasion of uh, Georgia. The, the new threat became crystal clear in, in 2014 when Russia invaded and annexed uh, Crimea and invaded uh, two oblasts in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. But despite that and, and NATO's decision at the World Summit in 2014 to increase defense spending, we continued uh, the downward trends in, in our armed forces. And the year after the Wales summit in 2015, Danish forces had a budget cut of 15%. And the consequence of this, this policy that, uh, that, that I would claim was very naive uh, was that when Russia launched the second invasion of Ukraine last year, the Danish armed forces were in an appalling state. We were underfinanced, uh, undermanned, underequipped. And, and not fit for high for major high intensity uh, fighting uh, like what we saw in Ukraine. Uh, this was a wake up call for uh, the the government we had back then. And on the sixth of March, they made with very broad support from Parliament a decision that is comparable with German Seiten. It was agreed uh, to increase defense spending up to two percent of GDP by. 2033 that was later changed to 2030 and at the same time there was an allocation of additional funds uh emergency funds uh, for the armed forces i would say the 
the, the bulk of, of the emergency funds have been used on military support to Ukraine and not support to, to our own armed forces. But I, I think that's very fair because the Ukrainians need it more than, uh, than, than we do. Then in, in late 22, we had general election and that, and that delayed the whole process uh, for, for some months. And now we're now entering into a phase where there will be uh, negotiations on, an, on a new defense agreement. And during the, the discussions leading up to the new defense agreement, I think there's a very good chance that, that the end result will not be a 2% defense spending by 2030. It will be more than 2%. And I cannot put an exact year to that, but but there's a discussion now that should be more than than uh, than two percent. And there's also in the new defense agreement, I think there's a very good chance that many of the capabilities that was disbanded in the years after the Cold War, like for example ground-based air defense and 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 uh, our reserve system, that that such uh, system and and uh, mechanisms will be stood up again. Uh, in the next defense agreement. So there's a, a kind of a site inventor that has has been a kind of a site inventor in, in Denmark as well as in Germany, but it has taken a long, long time. And I, I'm actually very surprised that it has taken so long uh, to get up to speed, just as I'm very surprised that it has taken a year before we seriously started a serious discussion on ramping up uh, production of defense equipment and production of ammunition. We have been pulling pulling stuff out of our warehouses for a year now, and now we finally start to discuss how this can continue. How can we continue to deliver what the Ukrainians need and at the same time uh, fill up our warehouses again? Well, that sounds almost like a cautiously optimistic note on which we might consider wrapping this session up we should we should stop now before we we get we get dark yeah, again let's do that <laughs> general thank you so much uh for for joining us today um from dalbo rohaj giselle donnelly and julia Zosa. thank you for listening to the eastern front a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the baltic sea to the black sea many thanks to our special guest today Brigadier General Carsten Rasmussen, retired from the Royal Danish Army. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.